Welcome to the Accelibility Podcast. This is a brand new series of conversations on success with people who happen to have a disability. Together, we'll uncover the attitudes, habits, techniques, and practices that enable these individuals to achieve astounding success. I'm hearing impaired, although the accurate description would be hearing repaired because I've been wearing <clears throat> hearing aids since I was 13. For some people, a disability feels like you're kind of incomplete or you know you're you're not a whole person or something. And for a while I think I had that discomfort. And then I finally realized, wait a minute, my only problem is I just don't hear very well. She lost her hearing when she was three and eventually discovered cochlear implants and scheduled the surgery and had the implant done. She got home and I discovered that I couldn't get her off the phone. She was like a 50 year old teenager. Hello there and welcome again to the Accelibility Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Chen. Today we're joined by someone who has profoundly impacted all of our lives. Vint Cerf is known as the father of that small thing we call the internet. Vint is hearing impaired, or as he likes to call it, hearing repaired because of his use of hearing aids. Vint will share with us the attitudes and techniques that have enabled him to achieve incredible success. You can find information about this podcast and previous and future episodes at www.teamaccelibility.com. That's www.teamexcelability.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Team Accelibility or on Twitter at Team Accelibility. Vint, thanks so much for being with us today and for sharing your insights. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us and tell us from your very illustrative career some of the lessons and techniques that you've learned along the way. Well, I appreciate the chance to chat, Jack. As you know, I've always enjoyed our conversations, so I hope that your listeners will find it of some value. All right, well, let's start from the beginning. Can you describe your disability and how it affects your daily life, maybe to somebody who's not already familiar with what it's like to have that disability? Sure, I'd be happy to. Basically, I'm hearing impaired, although the accurate description would be hearing repaired because I've been wearing <clears throat> hearing aids since I was 13. I was uh, six weeks premature, and uh, they, I was put into an oxygen tent because this was back in the 1940s in the middle of World War II, and that's all they knew how to do. The speculation is that the uh, excess oxygen began a kind of a continued uh, hearing uh, loss. I, my hearing goes down by about one dB a year, but hearing aids have kept up. And so, and also the loss is uh, is flat from the frequency point of view. So I've really been aided, literally, uh, by the uh, development of hearing aids, and I've been wearing them uh, since the uh, late 1950s. So uh, basically, I manage on a day-to-day basis thanks to electronics uh, and little tiny batteries that last for about a day and a half. <laughs> Exactly. And so are there any particular impacts, say, to your day-to-day life that someone who doesn't have a hearing loss might not realize? 
for example, in this kind of a call, I wear a headset. And for many cases where I'm uh, chairing a meeting, for example, especially if one that's in a big auditorium, I would often wear a headset tied into the PA system so that I'm getting very good quality sound from people who are speaking into microphones. Uh, that's that's the primary uh, accommodation for situations like that where you know, Q&A and uh, meeting management is important. The only other thing that I would say is that if I'm doing public speaking, for example, I'll have to explain that I need to run around with a microphone like Geraldo to hold the microphone in front of people who are asking questions in case I need to be close enough to lip read. Uh, and so that's a shtick that, uh, that I practice. Apart from that, in restaurants, I ask to be seated in quiet areas. I prefer a back to the wall where I won't be picking up a lot of sound from behind me. These are are very simple uh, little things, and they're all focused on being able to hear in potentially noisy environments. Apart from that, you know, I remind people that I am hearing impaired and sometimes need to be uh, my attention may need to be gotten in, in order to hear someone. Otherwise, I might just keep reading and ignore everything. Uh, but, you know, most people are, are pretty comfortable when they're told, just every, just let me know if you're trying to talk and I don't seem to be responding. Um, and everybody seems to have been uh, very accommodating. Yes, it does take a bit of plenty, doesn't it? It does. It does. Can you tell us a little bit about the time, maybe in your younger years, when you actually realized you had hearing loss, how that discovery impacted you, say, socially, emotionally, psychologically, or otherwise? So it was apparent that I was missing something, uh, probably uh, when I was in the third or fourth grade, maybe, which probably made me about nine years old. And they were going to put me in a lip reading class, and then they decided that this would actually make me lazy and that I should really learn to listen. So they took me out of that class and left me in a regular regular class. And it wasn't until I was about 13, so I, I would have been uh, in the eighth grade, um, when it was very clear that I had a hearing impairment and needed uh, hearing aids. So I, had, I was always sitting in the front of the room where I could see and hear the teacher better, but then there would be questions from the back of the room that I didn't hear and the teacher would answer them like yes and of course that didn't help me very much because if I didn't hear the question I didn't know what the yes meant so that was the point where I started wearing hearing aids and you know when you're 13 years old this kind of an awkward time to wear very visible behind the ear hearing aids so it was socially awkward and of course you know if you ever get into a situation where you're making out with a girl and your ears squeak because you get feedback that's embarrassing uh, so there was a there was a period of time when I had to adjust to that. Over the years, of course, I've become quite comfortable telling people I have, you know, I wear hearing aids and, you know, there's feedback if you put your hands over my ears and things like that. So for the most part, uh, I would say after I finally got through, uh, through high school, uh, I was pretty well accustomed to wearing hearing aids and not feeling self-conscious about it. But in the early days, it was a little awkward. Right. It, it definitely can be awkward. Were there any particular shifts in attitude or thinking, any particular memorable situations that happened that helped you to begin on that journey to be more comfortable? Once I got into the work environment, uh, which would be, you know, in my early uh, 20s, it, it is very clear, first of all, that uh, in order to function successfully, I needed people to know that I might miss what they were saying and, and, and I didn't want to surprise them or, or try to fake it. 
for a while you feel like you could fake it, but then you get discovered, like you answer the wrong question. Uh, and instead of the embarrassment of, of having been caught out uh, trying to fake it, it seemed a lot easier to just say, okay, I missed that, Would you uh, please say it again, and explain ahead of time uh, that that might be a problem, rather than, than being caught out. And so once I got over that uh, feeling of inadequacy, uh, life got a lot simpler and easier. So it's really battling that inadequacy that really helped you get over the hump. Pretty much. I mean, it was it was feeling comfortable uh, with this. It, uh, for some people, a disability feels like you're kind of incomplete, or you know, you're you're not a whole person or something. And for a while, I think I had that discomfort, and then I finally realized, wait a minute, my only problem is I just don't hear very well. And what's the big deal? I'll just tell people that so they can accommodate, and everybody does, and it works. Making it public and known can just break the ice. In an article with the Washington Post, you said, quote, I traded in my cello for a keyboard. Can you <laughs> describe what it's like to play the cello as someone with hearing loss and maybe why you opted for the computer arts, say, over the musical arts? Well, first of all, by the, at the time that I was playing the cello, uh, I was had a, only a very modest loss. I mean, we didn't get to the details, but my loss was probably 15 dB, maybe maybe 20 dB when I was 13. Uh, and as I say, it, it sort of went down by a dB a year. Um, so at the point where I had this choice, what I thought I had a choice to make between the cello and computers, I was about 15. So at that point, I was still hearing well enough that playing the cello was perfectly reasonable. And even now, with a 65 to 70 dB loss, uh, I still enjoy music because, as I say, the, uh, the loss is flat. So I'm not missing frequencies. I just need gain. Uh, at the time when I was 15, when I was first introduced to computers, an interesting machine, it was called the Semi-Automated Ground Environment, which was a big tube-based machine that was housed in Santa Monica, California at the System Development Corporation. It was taking radar traces from the distant early warning radars in northern Canada, sending them over phone lines to Santa Monica where people were looking to see whether there were any Russian bombers coming over the pole. And of course, it was important to distinguish between the Russian bombers and the Canadian geese. Uh, in the end, no Russian bombers showed up, but I think a lot of Canadian geese went over the border. And if you ask me, they caused more problems than the Russian bombers ever did. But in that year, it was 1958, I started to get very interested in computers. And by 1960, my best friend and I had access to computers at UCLA while we were still in high school. And I thought that I didn't have time for both the cello and, uh, and this computing that was so mesmerizing. This was a wrong conclusion, but at the time I didn't realize that. Of course, looking back, I re regret not having continued to play, and maybe someday, uh, if I retire, maybe I will get back to it. It's <laughs> great, if you retire. Yeah. I like the way you put that. Well, you know, retirement sounds, sometimes it sounds good, but then I look at what would I do? And I, I, all the things I do now, I would want to do while I'm retired. So who wants to retire? And then you can play the cello more. Right. Well, there is that. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about during your younger years, whether you thought at all that your hearing loss might impact your future? Did it ever cross your mind? It actually never really did. I mean, the hearing aids really made a huge difference for me. And by the time 1971 comes along, 
uh, I am at uh, UCLA in graduate school, and we invent email. I, I didn't. My uh, A good uh, friend of mine, Ray Tomlinson, who passed away recently, and who was very involved in the um, uh, implementation of the early TCP IP protocols, also invented email even before he started working on TCP IP. And so I was a heavy user of electronic mail in the year that it was invented and, and subsequently. And that was hugely helpful. Deferred computer-based communication has been an extremely important part of my life. In instant messaging, texting, and so on are all part of the, uh, I would say, mechanisms that enable uh, my ability to communicate comfortably. Uh, and so I think that has had a great impact on my career. And I probably maybe even consciously aimed myself in projects and jobs where email was available uh, and therefore made my life much more habitable. You've been called the father of the internet, received the National Medal of Technology and the Presidential Medal of Honor, inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame in 2012, amongst others. How would you describe or would you say that your disability has played a part in your success, either as a barrier that you had to overcome or as a driver or catalyst of your work or some other influence? So those are interesting questions. I, it certainly has never felt like it's been a huge barrier to overcome. It was something you had to adapt to. And I have adapted my practices based on what I am confident I can and can't do. I would say, though, that because email was so important, that meant networking was important. Uh, and in fact, email was derived out of the original ARPANET project, which is the predecessor to the Internet. My role in the ARPANET program was to uh, assist my best friend, Steve Crocker, in the development of the ARPANET protocols, the host-level protocols. And uh, I met my uh, colleague, Robert Kahn, with whom I did the TCP design, the core of the Internet, in 1973. I, I don't sense that this disability has been a barrier um, if anything, I think it probably aimed me in the direction of computer communication and, uh, and networking, which has been an absolutely wonderful career for me. And as you can imagine, over the last 40 years, watching the Internet continue to evolve, uh, to expand and to uh, host new applications has been enormously satisfying and also pretty exciting seeing other people uh, adding their ideas to this infrastructure and helping it to grow and become more useful. I really like what you said about aiming you in that direction. It almost seems as though the hearing loss was a driver or it pushed you in that direction so that you could do all this creation and really change the world. I do have one other one other thing I, I want to add, though, and it's, a, it's an interesting irony. You know that um, Alexander Graham Bell married a deaf woman. And uh, and so did I. My wife, uh, Sigrid, has two cochlear implants. But when I met her and later when we married, she was totally deaf. And she was a very, very accomplished lip reader uh, and raised two sons uh, without ever having heard their voices, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but then when she was, uh, after 50 years of deafness, she got two, a, a cochlear implant and then a second one 10 years later. But I should point out, uh, that uh, she didn't lose her hearing till she was three. So she had auditory memory, and that helped uh, to make the cochlear implants more effective. So she's now lived with her ability to hear a number, a couple of decades, we'll put it that way. 
And so in a very funny way, I feel like I have a sort of parallel to Alexander Graham Bell, who works on the telephone and I work on the internet. We both have deaf wives. <laughs> what a great comparison. Turning to a little bit of a different topic, you've spoken at many venues, including testifying before Congress, delivering the commencement address at University of Pittsburgh and in Gallaudet, and even at the White House. Has your hearing loss impacted your ability to speak and interact with the audience, or would you say that folks have pretty much adjusted to that? I would say that I have adapted uh, various methods to deal with this problem. I mean, I just recently uh, did a panel that I moderated. And the the thing that, that you do when you know you're going to be in a situation where uh, there are a bunch of people, some people asking questions with roving microphones, and you can't get plugged into the PA system like I would normally do with a headset. Then uh, then you ask people to put speakers aimed at the stage instead of the other way around so that you can actually get good quality sound. You know, there are a bunch of tricks that you learn to play in order to improve that. And in the worst case, you know, I can just say you're going to have to repeat the question or maybe someone else who's on the stage who can hear it will be able to repeat the question. This is all about finding various ways uh, to overcome the interference, so to speak, uh, with ability to hear. The thing that makes it easier, of course, is if you're very comfortable with the fact that you have to do that and you don't, you're not embarrassed to ask for accommodation. And I've gotten way beyond that you know, over the many, many years that I've done public speaking. And I think the, mo the most important message here is to get very comfortable with asking for accommodation on the premise that if they want you to come and speak, presumably they, you want, they want you to be able to hear the questions as opposed to being the guy that came to speak and wouldn't listen. So it sounds really like creativity after getting comfortable is the, the critical aspect of that. Yes, I think that's a good way of summarizing it. Any particularly funny stories that you can share when you were at a speaking engagement and your hearing uh, loss came into play? Well, I'm not sure that I can give you one from a speaking engagement, but I can tell you one fairly early on in, in my social life where I realized that uh, I shouldn't try to fake it. At one point, I was sitting around a, a pool in my backyard. This is when I was probably in my late teens and early 20s with, with a couple of friends. And I noticed that the um, skimmer on the pool was making quite a bit of noise, you know, big slurping, sucking noise, because it was, you know, pulling water in. And there was, uh, it turns out that there's a way of preventing that noise by dropping a great big cork into the skimmer. And so uh, I got up noticing the noise and it was, it was interfering with my hearing. Uh, so I was walking towards the skimmer and behind me, I heard someone say something, and I presumed that they all had noticed the same thing and uh, that they realized I was going to do something about the noisy skimmer. And so they said something, and I said, yeah, I'm going to put a cork in it. And suddenly they burst out laughing, and I turned around and said, what's so funny about that? And they said, well, what they had actually said was, gee, you have a beautiful bougainvillea in the backyard there. <laughs> So so much for faking or assuming uh, what somebody just said. Oh, my goodness. Let's turn to the corporate setting a little bit. A lot of folks who may be listening uh, are working at companies as well. So your insights into the corporate arena would be helpful as well. You've been the senior vice president at MCI twice, the VP and chief internet evangelist at Google, the commissioner for the UN's Broadband Council on Digital Development, Chairman of the board at ICANN, president of ACM, which is the Association of Computing Machinery and 
many more. In your corporate life, would you say that your hearing loss has been a barrier or an enhancement or both? I can recall a big challenge when I when I left uh, Stanford University after I was an undergraduate. I went to work for IBM, and my job was running a time-sharing system. This is in 1965, not very long after time-sharing had been invented in the early 1960s at MIT. Um, and so working in a data center back in those days meant a pretty noisy, uh, air-conditioned environment. And there were times when I needed to take phone calls and that was hard in a noisy environment like that because the hearing aids didn't have the kinds of mechanisms we have now, which are called telephone switches that uh, use magnetic induction, uh, electromagnetic induction in order to uh, take in the signal, which is what's happening right now. I mean, my hearing aids are now on what's called T-switch for telephone switch and the headset I'm wearing is delivering the sound uh, purely by EM. And the advantage of that is that there isn't any acoustic uh, noise uh, that gets into the system. On the other hand, uh, at the time that I was working at IBM, this was much harder. So uh, occasionally I would have to ask people to call me back or call them back in a quieter environment in order to take the calls. As I say, I, I uh, finished IBM um, finished working at IBM in 1967 and returned to graduate school. Uh, at UCLA and very soon thereafter uh, got involved in the ARPANET project during which email got invented and again I will say that the email removed the need to be on a lot of phone calls. However, in my corporate life I have uh, done a great many conference calls, uh, often purely by telephone uh, and that uh, could be a challenge, especially if you have people calling in from all over the world and the quality of the uh, telephones is not always wonderful. The thing which has made that uh, more habitable is that often people were on the, on the conference calls, but they were also online texting each other or, or you know, instant messaging or had a chat room open or something like that. And so technology has continued to be an aid to communication for me since the internet really has grown up during uh, the course of my career, except for the first few years of, uh, of working at IBM. <clears throat> after, uh, after I got to graduate school, email shows up very soon thereafter. Now, in turning to the topic of disclosure, which is something that is very challenging for many people, many people have a challenge disclosing because either they feel they'll be stigmatized or they feel like they don't know how to ask for help, or if they ask for help, they may feel that others won't understand. Do you have any advice for people who may be struggling with this particular issue about how to disclose and whether to disclose their disability? I think that disclosure um, is, you have to judge when, when it's timely to do this. I don't think I don't introduce myself by saying, "Hi, I'm Vince, or if I'm deaf, or you know, I'm hard of hearing," because right. um, I don't feel that that's necessary. But if I get to a point somehow in a conversation, for example, where I am having trouble hearing, then I will say, "By the way, I'm hearing impaired, and I may need some help." Or can we go to a quieter spot? This happens a lot when you go to um, you know receptions where the noise level tends to be up in the 95 to 100 dB or worse. Uh, and I will often say, can we step aside? Can we go outside? Can we go to another room? Can we go somewhere where it's quieter uh, in order to have a reasonable conversation? 
but I think I allow the circumstances to dictate when uh, it seems appropriate to say something. In a work environment, if you absolutely are going to need help, and it's clear, for example, you're in a wheelchair, or um, so that in a sense, that's that's sort of disclosed instantly, and you uh, you don't have to think about it. For other people, though, where a disability might not be obvious, I mean, what if it's a cognitive disability? What if it's colorblindness or, you know, some other thing which is not obvious? Deciding when to do that and how to do that uh, is uh, often an individual choice. And I guess if there was any advice to give, it would be to try to get comfortable uh, with disclosing for two different reasons. One, you want people to understand that you have a disability as opposed to thinking you're stupid or something. And the second one is that people are often afraid to ask and they may actually learn something and make your interactions with them far more comfortable if you're in fact willing to disclose uh, that you uh, may need some help or that you may need to do something uh, different than most other people do in order to communicate. Yeah, I really like what you said about the appropriateness and how when the situation dictates that you will have an issue or may have a performance issue, then that's an appropriate time to talk about it. I really like that. In a sense, it allows you an excuse to illustrate the nature of the disability or the challenge that that disability uh, poses because you're right there in a situation where it's important for that person or persons to know. Exactly. And maybe not to wait too long before it becomes a major problem, which can happen. Right. Now, I've heard you tell this story, this funny story about uh, your wife and how she could, that she could leave the table and still hear conversations. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear for you to tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, well, let, let me uh, give you a little background. First of all, I had already mentioned uh, Sigrid a little bit. She lost her hearing when she was three and eventually discovered cochlear implants. And she was actually online and sent an email message to uh, one of the physicians at Johns Hopkins University where implants are, uh, are surgery is done and scheduled the surgery and had the implant done. And then when came back to Johns Hopkins after uh, a couple of weeks to let everything heal, she was activated, uh, which sounds kind of vaguely religious, but uh, she, her, her speech processor was turned on and a map was put in, which is mapping sound coming in to electrodes that were being stimulated artificially by the computer, uh, these electrodes are embedded in her auditory nerve inside the cochlea, and it makes the brain think it's hearing. And within about 20 minutes or so of installing the uh, initial map, she picked up the phone and called me, and we actually talked to each other on the phone after having been married for 30 years without the ability to do that. Now, there's nothing funny about that. It's when she got home that it got funny. Uh, she got home, and I discovered that I couldn't get her off the phone. She was like a <laughs> 50-year-old teenager. <laughs> Uh, it didn't matter who called, you know, it could be, you know, telemarketing and she would say, oh, hello, how are you? Where are you? Oh, you're in India. You know, uh, which part of the country are you in? How did, you know, how did you get your job? And, you know, at one point, AT&T called and I wanted her to switch to AT&T. This is when I was senior VP at MCI. <laughs> so she goes on for half an hour and they finally said, this poor telemarketer says, well, are you going to switch to AT&T? And she says, no, my husband's SVP at MCI, but thanks for calling. <laughs> <laughs> then the part that was really lovely, though, is she called up the um, 
library, local library, and said she wanted to get recorded books for the blind because she wanted to hear words that she knew but hadn't heard uh, until now with her uh, implant. And they remember now she's on the phone, right? So they said, oh, fine, no problem, name, address, phone number. And then she says, now you're blind, aren't you? And she says, no, I'm deaf. And there's this long pause while she's trying to figure out how is that going to work? So she, yeah. Sigrid ended up uh, getting all kinds of assistive equipment to go with her cochlear implants. So she got FM transmitters and receivers. So if she goes to a lecture, she just hangs the transmitter around the neck of the speaker or puts it on the lectern. And then she can pick up the FM signal from 150 feet away. Uh, And that's the thing that she sometimes will leave on the dinner table at a noisy restaurant. She'll have the little FM transmitter. And if she goes to the ladies' room, she just leaves the transmitter on the table so she can hear uh, what the conversation is, even when she's not at the table. And so we have to tell everybody, don't say anything secret. Sigrid might be snooping. (laughs) Love that story. Hey, Vint, are there any people with uh, disabilities that you particularly admire? And if so, is there anything that you've learned from them or that we could learn from them? Well, uh, Jack, you know, you're one of my heroes, uh, and I am terrified every time I see you because you go <laughs> blasting down the hall as if there couldn't possibly be anything in the way. Uh, and I always worry that, you know, you're going to run into something, but somehow your, your spidey sense manages to keep you working safely. But you do things that a lot of other blind friends that I know uh, don't do, and I'm impressed by that. What it does is remind me that people with disabilities often don't really feel disabled. They just know that there are some things they have to accommodate. And I'm always impressed by people who are comfortable in their own skins that way. There's another uh, Googler who I have known for probably now 40 years or more now, uh, Ken Harenstein, who happens to be born deaf. And so he, he signs and he has a couple of signers available to him that Google supplies. And uh, in a sense, uh, there are two things to admire there. One is that Google supplies people to assist Ken in his job, day-to-day job. And second, that Ken is incredibly uh, agile at, uh, at working in an environment where uh, he needs this signing interpretation. He's really, really good at it uh, and doesn't seem to miss a thing. So a, a person who has made a career despite that kind of challenge, your your challenge and his challenge, always impresses me because it just seems like it's a, a big barrier to overcome. And yet I suspect uh, if, if I were the person asking questions in this interview, you would tell me, well, that's true, I can't see, but you know what, I can accommodate, I can make up for that, I have ways of, of dealing with it. And Ken would say the same thing, I think. And really, so it's about finding a way to do what you really want to do, even though it may be hard. That's right. And the thing that's always impressive is that uh, people like you and Ken make it seem not not hard. In fact, you may recall when you and I were on a GVC once, and at some point in the conversation, we were both, I think, felt compelled to go look something up in Google. And I was starting to type, and you were listening, and I could hear the Google system speaking to you because you were using a screen reader of some kind. And I stopped typing because I was so completely fascinated by the fact that you could hear and understand 
what was being said at what sounded to me like three or four times the normal rate. And so I just sat there thinking, I wish everybody at Google could hear Jack using Google at this, you know, triple speed, because it seemed pretty astonishing to somebody like me who's half deaf. Uh, and I, that was an important object lesson for me uh, to see how you had used these technologies to overcome the problem. And in fact, in some ways, speed things up faster than, uh, than uh, the rest of us. Vent, I remember that very well. You know, I'm a really firm believer that the lessons we learn as people with disabilities can really impact and enhance the lives of our non-disabled counterparts. Any particular lessons that you've learned that you think would apply to our non-disabled compadres? I think the most important lesson is not to make any assumptions about what people are capable of doing uh, and capable of accommodating. You know, how many times have you seen someone who has no arms but uses uh, their feet to paint, for example, and you think, how can anybody ever do that? The ingenuity and adaptability of the human brain and body are truly astonishing. And I think that also for our, our colleagues who don't have a known disability now, as they get older, of course, they may experience some kinds of of disability, whether it's poorness of hearing or uh, eyesight, or maybe, you know, your body just sort of creaks and groans like it didn't used to when you were 22. And so I think that's an important life lesson for everyone that as you age, sometimes there are things that you either have to do differently or can't do anymore. And uh, that's not terribly different than what you and I experience every day. Right. And so there are a lot of things that You've mentioned like a feeling comfortable asking for help that can really be applied, I think, to folks who have, who don't have a disability. So yeah, that's correct. The, the other side of this also is not being afraid to ask uh, how I can help. I think when you and I first met, I wasn't sure what what I should or could do to make you know to to be of, of uh, assistance. And you taught me that the best thing to do is not to grab your hand or arm or anything, but let you hold on to my elbow, for example, because you could follow where I was going. You could tell I was going downstairs or upstairs by the change in, I guess, angle of my arm or something, which was an important lesson for me. And I would have been uncomfortable asking, uh, but but you're accommodating in that regard, and I wasn't afraid to ask you questions. And you may recall the question I did ask once because I was so curious and you were so, seemed so willing to answer. I said, do you cook? And you said, yes. And I said, well, how the hell do you know when the meat's done? And you said, well, I put my finger on it. And my reaction was, well, I'm not eating anything that you cooked recently. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> well, you'll still have to come over for dinner one day, Vint. I promise I won't touch the meat. <laughs> In which case, for all I know, it'll either be well done or raw. One <laughs> I'll use a meat thermometer. How about that? Well, a talking meat thermometer. A talking meat thermometer. Well, that's a great answer. The other alternative is that you always serve steak to tar, and that's it. There you go. That, that's the other answer. So we've been talking about disability and success. Do you have any final thoughts, tips, ideas for folks out there? Yes, I do. First of all, I want to say that technology is our friend here, and that as time goes on, more and more technical means for uh, recovering uh, body function is being invented and we should take advantage of that at some point 
it seems quite likely that uh, we may even augment our normal capabilities with ones that are super normal, in which case uh, everyone may end up making use of these technologies in order to uh, essentially advance human capacity beyond what is normal to supranormal. Someone recently was telling me that if we get accustomed to using artificial intelligence that we have dialogue with, as we would with Google Home, that someday we might simply wear a thing that looks like a hearing aid, but in fact it's connected to the net. When you speak, it hears what you have to say. We had a, a something kind of like that with Google Glass, as you may recall, uh, where you could have a, it wasn't quite a dialogue, but you could tell it to take a picture or ask it a question or ask to get directions. So the idea that we might use technology, uh, regardless of whether we have a disability or not, to augment our own capability seems like it's very likely in the future. And so everyone, in some sense, will have an opportunity to advance beyond normal. Well, Vint, in that world, you'll have a leg up on us because you've been wearing hearing aids for so long already. <laughs> and I'm accustomed to using them. And accustomed to using them, exactly. Well, hey, Vint, thanks so much for taking out the time. I really appreciate it. You've had some really wonderful thoughts to share with folks out there. And I'm really excited for folks to be able to hear and to learn and to grow and to be able to find where their success really lies. So thanks, Vint, again, and we really appreciate your time. Oh, I always enjoy chatting, Jack, as you know, and I look forward to our next conversation. Fantastic. This concludes our conversation on success with Vint Cerf, father of the internet. Vint has shown us that his success factors, including feeling comfortable with your disability, asking for help when needed, employing technology wherever possible, and using disability as a driver for career direction have enabled him to achieve world-renowned success. Join us next time for our conversation with Hollywood film composer Steve Letness. I moved to Austin, Texas because my buddy had a job for me selling door-to-door. A blind guy selling door-to-door. Yes, a short film writes itself. Please feel free to contact Team Excelability to share your comments, questions, or feedback, or to share your own story with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find out more information about this podcast and other resources by visiting us at www.teamexcelability.com, on Facebook at Team Excelability, or on Twitter at Team Excelability. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thank you.